Well, you might have noticed that both in our Old Testament reading and our Gospel reading, we are hearing about call, God's call. Um, Two very different responses, however, to God's call, but interestingly, a similar result. Now, we're quite familiar, I think, with the story of Jonah. Um, We picked up um, when Jonah is recalcitrantly going on his way to Nineveh. But we begin the story of Jonah with God's call for him to go to Nineveh, who are the arch enemy of the Israelites. And uh, what does Jonah do? He goes, "Uh -uh, I'm not going, going the other way. And he runs off to Tarshish. And which is diametrically opposed uh, geographically to Nineveh. And he gets on a boat thinking to escape God. Um, And indeed what happens is a big storm comes up and all of the sailors are going, what did we do? What on earth happened? Why is the God's against us? And, uh, and Jonah eventually said, well, actually, it's, it's me, it's, it's my fault, I'm to blame. And they're going, no, 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 we're going to get everything else off of the boat. And he's going, no, you're going to have to throw me off of the boat. And they're going, no, 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 we'll try and get everything off, else off of the boat. And the storm doesn't abate. And eventually they're going, okay, we are going to have to throw you overboard. So he goes overboard, swallowed by a whale, a big fish, and ends up there in three days. And, and at that point in time, he's going, okay, Lord, have mercy. And he's vomited back onto the land. That's actually the word there. He's just kind of uh, back onto the shore. And he just kind of then makes his way to Nineveh. He still does not want to proclaim the word to Nineveh. Well, this is a pretty big town because it takes three days to walk from one side of it to the other. And he's only one day in. And you can imagine, right? He just does not want to be doing this still, but he is. And so he's kind of saying, Four more, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And you're probably, he's probably going, yes, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But what happens is, despite whatever way it is that he is proclaiming this message that he doesn't want to give necessarily, or he doesn't want God's grace to come upon these people who are his enemy, they start repenting and put on uh, ashes and sackcloth and, and even the king, and the king gives an edict. And, uh, and of course, what happens is the whole of Nineveh repents and God does not destroy them. Of course, the story then goes on, and he's still in a hissy fit about the fact that now they've repented, and I knew that's what you were going to do, God, because you're a gracious God, and you forgave them, and I didn't want them, and so let me just die here. So here's a very recalcitrant Jonah who has answered God's call um, really been quite disobedient about it, but God can work with him, right? He's just worked through him, and the whole of Nineveh has repented. Um, fast forward many years to Jesus, who now his cousin John has been put in prison. John's had this ministry of baptism for repentance in the Jordan River, kind of located in one place, and now Jesus has left Nazareth, 
And he's now gone to the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And his, um, what he's proclaiming is somewhat similar. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And what happens is he's wandering along the seashore is that he comes first of all upon Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. Um, they're just simple fishermen. There was nothing particular about Jonah. There's nothing particularly special about Simon Peter and Andrew. And they're fishing, they're mending their nets, they're on the shore of the sea where their families have fished these waters for probably centuries. And Jesus says, follow me. And what happens is they immediately follow him. And then a little bit further along, he comes across James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Again, family business. Leave their father when he says, come and follow me and I will make you the King James Version, fishers of men that we're so familiar with. I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, they leave their nets and they follow him. They leave their tradition. They leave their business. They leave their family. They really go against cultural norms. In fact, they leave everything immediately. Can you imagine what was Jesus' presence like? What must it have been to have Jesus come up and say, follow me, for them to have dropped everything and followed after him? They have no other means to put food on the table. They're just scraping a living as it is. They don't know where he's going to take them. They don't know where they're going to live. Imagine if you would, if you work in a bank or if you work in the school or if you work in a hospital, that somebody comes up to you and says, follow me. You're going to go, "Um, I'm earning a living here. How, how am I going to go and purchase my groceries? How am I going to get clothing? How am I going to look after my family? Where are we going to live? What are you going to do to provide all of those things? They don't ask that. What must Jesus' presence and power have been that they immediately answered the call and followed after him. Well, I, I think some of us have known that, right? Because he still asks the same question of all of us. Of course, you know, these are not the only calls that we hear about in Scripture. Remember Abraham? He's, he's a wealthy businessman. He's got herds, he's got flocks, he's got gold, he's got silver, he's got lots and lots of people. And God says, leave your father's house and go to the land 
I will show you. I'm not going to tell you right away where it is. I'm not going to give you the crystal ball to know five years down the road, 10 years, 20 years down the road where it's going to be. But leave your father's house and go to the land I will show you. Moses, he's been taken in. He's in the court. He's in the high court. He's in Pharaoh's court. He's looked after by Pharaoh's daughter who's pretty much adopted him as her own. And yet, God calls him to set his people free, to be that conduit, to be the person through whom God is going to act. What about David, a young shepherd boy? He's just looking after the sheep, and God calls him out of the sheepfold to look after God's people as king. What about Esther, a young Jewish girl? The only thing about her that sets her apart is her amazing beauty. And God uses her to place her into a pagan king's court so that her people, God's people, will be saved. See, a businessman, an adopted son, a shepherd boy, a young Jewish girl, they didn't have any particular gifts or talents in and of themselves, but God called them because it's never about our gifts or our talents. It's about what God's Holy Spirit can do in broken pots. We don't need to be perfect. In fact, who is? For God to call and use in whatever way he wants. Because it was God's spirit that came in amongst the Ninevites who heard Jonah's word in a special way that they were cut to the quick, to their souls to repent. It was the work of the Spirit that empowered simple fishermen. They had nothing to recommend them for this kind of work. They were fishermen. They weren't philosophers. They didn't know. They knew their scriptures, but, but they, weren't, uh, they weren't Pharisees. They weren't scribes. They weren't informed in the law of Moses in that way. But it was the power of God's spirit working through them, in them, that spread the good news and actually made them fishers of men. See, it's never us, right? It's never us. It's only God's spirit working through obedient and trusting hearts that God does his work into the world. You maybe have heard the old adage that it was professionals who built the Titanic and a rank amateur who built the ark. The Titanic sank, remember. The ark rescued the animals and the people. 
See, we don't have anything in and of ourselves. But God calls each one of us. Because Jesus still extends that invitation. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's not just clergy. That's not just lay leadership in the church. That's every single person. He is always extending that invitation because it's an invitation into his kingdom life. We're each called to a radical discipleship, to be willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads. At confirmation and at baptism, we're asked the same question. Do you turn to Jesus and accept him as your savior? Do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? Do you promise to follow and obey him as your Lord? Because to be a Christian is to be invited into his kingdom, which means repenting or turning our backs on the other kingdoms, the Caesar kingdoms, the other kingdoms of the world that will draw us back into their ways unless we follow him, unless our eyes are fixed on Jesus and not the ways of the world. It means, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, that the present form of this world is passing away. So we're to hold lightly to the things of this world and to follow Jesus with undivided loyalty wherever he leads. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And then he turns and looks each of us in the eye. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Will we respond immediately? like Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, or maybe like Jonah, disobedient at first. Just remember, if we choose Jonah's way, the storm's in a whale in that direction. And this is the prayer in the collect. Give us grace, O Lord to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and to proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.